Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening. Today, I am speaking with Sadia Hamid. Sadia is a spokesperson for the councils of ex-Muslims of Britain, and she also used to work quite a bit in the women's sector in the UK. Hi, Sadia. Thank you for coming on. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you want to, if you don't mind just giving people a little bit of a background about you, like the first time I became aware of you is when I saw that movie by uh, the Akhan, um, uh, yeah. uh, Britain's Ex-Muslims, I believe that was the one. So uh, the film is called Islam's Non-Believers, okay. uh, and that's what kind of ended up thrusting me into um, uh, into this movement, really, I guess. Uh, but before that, for about uh, a decade, I'd been working in the women's sector, spe- specifically around domestic abuse and sexual violence. So that's my specialist area, and I focus uh, on... Uh, I- I specialize in harmful traditional practices, so things like uh, honor-based violence, forced marriage, FGM, uh, and the list is, you know, quite long. Obviously, there's like breast ironing, dowry-related uh, abuse, um, you know, sex-selective abortion, things like that. So that was my specialist background, um, and then I ended up uh, becoming quite uh, involved in the um, atheist and secularist movement. Um, uh, after my brother, um, and yeah, so it's, that that kind of thrusted me more into, you know, the public arena. Um, but it was it was an easy easy transition as well because so many ex-Muslims, so many atheists face, uh, you know, harmful traditional practices in the UK, for instance. The the two things that ex-Muslims are most likely to face. Uh, honor-based violence uh, or forced marriage. We see that time and time again uh, or being completely disowned by family. So, you know, it was quite an easy shift to um, the atheist movement, specifically for, you know, ex-Muslims and uh, atheists of colour, I guess. Um, the, the, The difficulty that I've experienced, though, when I was doing this work uh, with and I wasn't joint to the atheist movement, it felt just a tiny bit easier. I mean, it was always hard in some senses because there was a different standard for women of colour than there was for, uh, you know, uh, white women. So when we talked about domestic abuse and sexual violence, we'd finally got to a place where everybody could unanimously say, these things are wrong, yes, we'll just sit and nod and, you know, it's, it's easy. But when we were talking about the issues that women of colour faced, there were always conversations about religion and race and, uh, you know, accusations of racism and accusations of bigotry um, for questioning um, these experiences that these women were having, um, which made me quite... uh, Sorry, am I allowed to swear? Oh, feel free. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it fucked me up, actually, because they, you know, we're still focusing on... The, the sensibilities of the perpetrators than the experiences of the victims. And we've seen that time and again in Britain. So for honour crimes uh, and forced marriage, whenever we talk about those issues, somebody will bring up racism or Islamophobia and you know fear of harming sensibilities. There's never that conversation. We never talk about, um, you know, well, uh, when we're talking about domestic abuse or sexual violence, nobody says, well, not all men are rapists. That's quite an old 
saying. You know, they don't need to caveat it with that anymore. We have to caveat it. Every time you have a discussion about harmful traditional practices, we have to caveat it with not all brown people, not all Muslims, as if as if there's a suggestion just because we're talking about these issues that we're, we're, we're claiming that everybody from that community is a perpetrator. I find that quite offensive. Um, that they think just because I'm talking about the issues that affect me that I'm also, uh, you know, promoting some kind of bigotry towards my community. And I'm fed up. I'm sick to the back teeth of adding these caveats and wasting my fucking time um, when actually, for me, what's more important is the experiences of the victims than the identity and the potential backlash that perpetrators are going to experience. Um, you know, if if you don't have to add that caveat when you're talking about domestic abuse and sexual violence, why do we have to do it when we're talking about our issues? And then worse still, it's even worse when you have this element of apostasy um, or, or atheism or, you know, any of the kind of people that I work with now. There's this, there's this vulgar, um, uh, there's this vulgar kind of um, assumption that they ask for it, that atheists and apostates from Islam, just by choosing not to believe, are more deserving of honor crimes and forced marriage. So I got into this sector, the women's sector, for two reasons. One, for my, uh, because of my own personal experiences, but two, because of the murder of Banaz Mahmoud um, and the fact that she had nobody. Um, so that was what thrusted me into this this sector because I, I felt I could, I, the, her, the injustices that she had experienced, they, they sat in my stomach like you know, it just sat at the back of my mouth like a bad taste for a very, very long time. And, you know, the institutions that worked with Banaz are still failing people, still failing women, still failing minorities. That hasn't changed. Some of the smaller institutions around the country are doing a bit better because, you know, they don't have the excuse of, well, we're constantly run off our feet. But the Metropolitan Police, as an example, are still a very, very poor and shoddy institution. They constantly give us the excuse, we haven't got enough money, we haven't got enough officers, we haven't got the understanding. We'll fucking learn then. Why is that excuse being given to us when it's women of colour, but when you're uh, dealing with domestic abuse and sexual violence, with it, it's just easier. You know, you don't, you're not facing the backlash. The only other community that we saw this level of um, failure of the victims was the child sexual exploitation cases that we saw in Britain, so by that I mean the grooming gangs, the, the Muslim Pakistani men uh, and Bangladeshi Muslim men in Britain that were, uh, um, you know, exploiting, raping, sharing amongst themselves uh, white working class girls. That was the only other case when we saw a complete failure of the victims uh, for fear of not upsetting the perpetrators and the community of the perpetrators. Um, so that's, you know, in, in, in our case and in their case, it was the victims that were being let down. And I'm not for a moment saying that uh, all ex-Muslims are victims, but what I'm saying is our experiences aren't taken seriously. Yeah, I mean, okay, you brought up a lot of stuff there. I it's not nearly as bad in Canada and the United States as reports I see coming out of the UK and Europe. Um, but we have had cases here where um, 
it was last year, it was an Afghani refugee who was let off with a very light sentence uh, for raping a, a woman, and it was because, well, he doesn't really know our customs. Well, that's ridiculous. I'm it, sorry. It, you know, it, it is. It, it's, it's, and I see this as a failure of our governments. I mean, I know you're talking about the institutions in the UK, and, you know, that's a failure of the institutions, it's a failure of the government. And I keep bringing this up. When my when my family emigrated to Canada at the end of seventy five, my mm. parents, you know, the government had courses where you could go learn about laws and you know we're an open yeah. society, but they actually took the time to teach new immigrants these things. So the immigrants knew what was kind of expected of them. Like, okay, here are your freedoms, but here are also your obligations. Yeah. Okay. The well, interesting thing is. The interesting thing is, so Britain has something called a life in the UK test, which is what you have to be able to pass to get British citizenship or settlement in the UK. Now, I've seen the questions that they ask. They don't ask anything about the laws. They don't ask, you know, they don't ask useful questions. But we must also remember that this is a shitty, shitty excuse that... um, these perpetrators have because no matter what country in the world you're in perpetrators know there's some basic things that humans know right that you shouldn't be raping people you shouldn't be murdering people those things are very very basic to let somebody off for that because we had a case like that in the uk uh there was a case in 2003 i think it was heshi Yunus. her dad slit her throat uh, in his bathroom, uh, in their bathroom, and killed her. And the judge made religious and cultural leniencies during her sentencing. It took so long, nearly a decade, to have that sent, you know, that have that uh, leniency overturned, because what that that sends quite a strong message that our lives, the lives of women of colour, are worth less than that of a white British woman. Then we went full circle. In, in the in in their bigotry and in their double standards then uh, a few years later we have a um, two girls that were sexually assaulted two Muslim Pakistani British Muslim girls that were raped and during the sentencing the judge said because of the double shame that these women are going to experience, this perpetrator is going to get a heavier sentence, which then says to white uh, women in this country that when you're raped, it's, it's not as serious. Do you, like The message that they're sending to others in society is that you're either more or less important. And actually, one thing that the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain does um, is... Uh, advocate for equality we want everybody to be treated as equals and that doesn't mean that we're not taking into account their differences it just means that in terms of the law and education and uh, social services everybody is treated equally um, and no one group of people or persons is given priority or special treatment because then what that does is it pisses off another group in society so if one group is being favored then other groups are going to feel like well why are they getting special treatment and we're being left behind and that causes you know we've, we're already a very very divided country but div- divisions are uh, deepened by that that kind of that kind of behavior that kind of thinking those kind of um d- that kind of double standard essentially yeah and okay the double standards one thing like like you brought it up it's 
so if uh, you know I have a friend who talks about going to the police when she was younger because she was being beaten by her parents and because she was brown and it's like oh well that's just something that happens in your culture and it was kind of brushed aside you know, it, yep, that <laughs> you know but I mean it takes a lot for a teenager to go yeah. to the police to bring this up about their parents right and so they're yeah. oh just because you're you're brown it, it's it's I you know I I agree with you that like we we have laws we're everyone's supposed to be equal under the law yeah. but it's you know you know, it's cliche and everyone says it, but I mean, it is Orwellian. It's, you know, some are more equal than others or, exactly. you know. Exactly. Um, we do know that the the law of this country, and I think many countries actually it could be said, is created for not only a certain race, but also a certain class of people. So, that, you know, uh, middle class people, white middle class people in this country are going to be treated very, very different, differently to somebody who's working class, you know, is a bit rough and ready. And I, like I said, I used to work in sexual violence. So I know some of the, just the different, um, the different interaction that you would have with people from different class backgrounds, even to the way that you talk. Um, and because I used to work in sexual violence, I mean, part of our job was to ensure that victims of rape were treated fairly um, and some would be better at it and others wouldn't be so good at it. Um, so, of course, sometimes it depends on the police officer. I guess I'm new, having to throw one of those caveats in that I hate having to do that, not all police officers. Um, and it does piss me off I have to do that. But the fact remains that there are some very, very bad apples within these institutions that treat people differently. But also something else has been happening in this country and I'm, you know, I've experienced it personally um that there are um there are individuals that have an, a vested interest in ensuring that these crimes can carry on being perpetrated against uh women and vulnerable people within our community so they place themselves in positions of power and i'll give you an example of this and there's countless examples of this but i can give you one that's a very personal experience so in my county i deliver training around harmful traditional practices um and i have been doing for half a decade now um, and I was asked to deliver this training with an experienced social worker who'd been practicing at that time in the county for 23 years. Uh, she was a Gujarati Muslim um, social worker. Um, and she delivered one half day of training with me. And after that, she was told to kindly fuck off and never come back. Because after that half day of training, she told me... so. She's from the local Gujarati Muslim community. Her manager is from the local Gujarati Muslim community. And a victim of domestic violence that she was supporting was from the local Gujarati Muslim community and her husband who was beating her. <clears throat> she had to place this victim in a refuge because uh, the abuse was so bad and she had to get her safe. Her husband then approached the, the manager of this social worker and said, I want my fucking wife back, mate. Um, this manager approaches this social worker and says, well, the husband's come to me and said this, you make it happen. And essentially, they were reunited. Now, that victim is never, ever going to trust any institute ever again because of the failure and quite a grave failure at uh, the hands of this social worker. Now, I don't know if she's still alive. Who knows? How would I know, right? But the, 
there's this huge failure that's happened and it's happening across the country in Britain. There's a video of a, <clears throat> an ITV video of a policewoman where from the London Metropolitan Police Service they had set up this unit within the police to give uh, theological advice to people coming to their service which isn't their job I'm not very happy about my tax money going towards providing theological advice when they're a public ser uh, service and their job is to protect and safeguard the community and nothing more um, so this, this unit was set up and because this woman was challenging uh, some of the practices that she was seeing, some of the ideas that they were supposed to be tackling, she was told that FGM is a clean and honourable practice and that she should get down on her knees and beg for forgiveness for, um, for being not a good Muslim. Um, and this, this video came out, I think, in 2016, so three years ago. Um, so we know... Uh, and she's now lost her job, by the way, because she tried to complain and take it further and it didn't go any further. So she was essentially bullied out of her job because if that police officer uh, dealing with her was even one rank higher, I mean, the police is one of the oldest old boys clubs in the country. They close ranks very, very quickly. They would safeguard the, the senior police officers more so than the, the, the junior police officers. Um uh, and she'd actually rose to the rank of sergeant before having to leave the police. So obviously her track record was good enough to get her to rise to the rank of sergeant. But the point is, I've personally seen, uh, both in my personal professional experience and uh, through my activism up and down the country through lots and lots of resources and lots and lots of video evidence and lots of you know, uh, interactions that I've had with people, um, there are people that have a vested interest in safeguarding these harmful traditional practices within our communities and safeguarding the perpetrators, not the victims. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, a couple of things on that. One, I, so I did a lot of work overseas. I worked with the military, but then the last few years I've been up in Northern Canada and the Inuit communities up there, I mean, there's so many problems that you can't even begin to list them all. It's, but I, I see that a lot. There's people that come up out of, you know, I'll call it misplaced altruism. They want to do yeah. good, but at the same time, they perpetuate, you know, that these people are continuously victims and mm. they always need help so that there's always, you know, they're always there to help them. So they're kind of, you know, yes. I don't want to be that cynical, but it's almost like it's job protection. Yeah. And then another thing I see is this, we don't want to seem racist. So we'll, yeah. we'll err on the side of injustice just so we don't seem like we're, we're not, you know, just so we don't look racist. And that's self-protection, isn't it? And if, yeah. that, if that's why you're doing that job, then don't fucking do it because this is exactly what I had to say to the social worker. You know, while she was telling me this, this horrific story of safeguard, uh, you know, of um, reuniting perpetrator with victim, um, she was also sat there telling me, well, but I, have, I have to keep my family safe. And I thought, if you can't keep your family safe whilst doing your job, jack your job in and go and work in fucking Asda. Don't work in... Uh, so her job was adult social care, so safeguarding vulnerable adults. If you can't keep the, those that are in your care safe, don't do the job. Fuck off and do a job that pays your bills, but don't do something where you're ruining people's lives and throwing victims back in, in front of the bus that they were trying to jump out of the way of. 
that is that you know and uh, i'm always suspicious of these individuals that, uh, and i guess i have become very very cynical now because the evidence has pushed me into that you know uh, not because and i wasn't always this cynical i came into this sector feeling like well these agencies have been set up to safeguard these people and they're going to regardless of my personal experiences my personal experiences like your friend were really really negative with these institutions but i was hoping that they had learned enough in since the since uh, when these things were happening to me Till when I started, you know, uh, practicing as a professional, the reality is they've got worse. They've actually got a lot, lot worse. And these people that have this interest in safeguarding these practices have become louder and more powerful within these institutions. And then there's voices like mine that have been trying to safeguard the victims, truly safeguard the victims that are, are being viewed and treated as troublemakers because they're getting in the way of the people that have this vested interest in you know safeguarding the perpetrators my problem is that um so i've attended several meetings around these kinds of things and these individuals turn up and they will filibuster they will derail conversation they will intentionally not allow us to to do the work they will create obstacles i mean i've held events where people have turned up and said this has got nothing to do with islam and the conversation of islam hasn't even been touched upon in a two-hour event because what they're trying to do is create this atmosphere of fear and i have to remind you every single honor killing that we've had in this country perpetrators often the family members of the victims that have killed the victims will cry islamophobia they will cry racism every single time that yeah. that's no, I mean it's it's just giving that excuse, and and they unfortunately these people, you know, like I said, maybe I I still give them a little bit of benefit of the doubt. Like I said, misplaced altruism. At one point, I was mm -hmm. saying you know, it was benevolent bigotry, and it's you, you're, you're no, but you're giving people an out. You're giving people an excuse to say this. Um, I just want to mm -hmm. slightly shift a little bit, but it's kind of on the same tack because I know. Cool. Okay, last year. Um, was it last year at the Pride Parade where the Council uh, Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain got uh, in trouble because of the Allah's gay flag, or was it the year before? It was the year before, yeah. yeah. And then, then this year, like, with the stuff that's going on in Birmingham, and they're capitulating, you know, it's like, okay, well, these people are brown, so do they have more rights than these people who are only homosexual and they're not brown? Like, I, I don't understand, like, how, like, where is this calculus coming from? Like, how do you figure out this oppression calculus, you know, like who, who do you protect? This is again the double standard, right? Because if you are a white atheist, if you're, a, a, I guess, an ex-Christian, so to speak, you are not gonna, you're never gonna face any criticism for criticizing, mocking, lampooning Christianity. I've never seen that same backlash. You know, the death threats, the rape threats, the the abusive messages that we persistently get as an organization um we i never see that but for ex-muslims there's this there's this accusation instantly that's thrown in our face and it's just this double standard why is one set of ideas perfectly okay and acceptable to criticize but islam is not um but it's exactly that that and, you know there's been a huge effort in this country to liken um, Islam and Muslims to a race when actually Islam itself 
claims to be a universal religion that attracts everybody from all racial backgrounds. I mean, I feel like this has been said so many times that I, get, I actually get bored of saying this now, that it's not a race. And if, if you still think that it's a race, you're a fucking moron. <laughs> right. No, no, but it's true. I mean, okay, the whole Islam is a race thing. And then, I mean, I keep hearing Muslim culture. Mm. And it's okay, you know, and again, this is a point I've tried to drive home and a mutual friend of ours, uh, Yasmin Muhammad, she said the same thing. It's like, you know, a Catholic living in the Philippines and a Catholic living in uh, Argentina, they don't mm. have, you know, they share Catholicism in common, but, yeah. you know, they don't share a culture. They don't, you know, it's it's the same thing. I mean, Muslims in Pakistan and Muslims in Tunisia yeah. share belief system, you know, obviously you know, dietary restrictions, all that, but it's not the same culture. But actually something's been happening because when, when I was younger, yeah. um, so I'm now, I'm going to be 33 in a couple of months. Uh, when I was younger, there was no such thing as Muslim culture. It was Pakistani culture. It was, you know, Indian culture. And actually I remember because uh, uh, I, I'm very aware that Pakistanis are very, very bigoted and very, very racist. So my family used to say to me things like, you know, uh, uh, you know, their Hindu culture. We can't practice some of their Hindu practices. You know, that's gonna that's gonna stray you away from your religion. But they were very proud of their Pakistani culture. And actually, I'm I feel a, a deep loss now because I, I I quite like some of the cultural things that I grew up with not the religious uh, but some of the cultural things I love the food I love Pakistani music and it's very different to uh, you know Bollywood or yeah. Indian music I love Pakistani music so very much like some of the old classics you know um, uh, uh, Noor Jahan and um, uh, I've forgotten her name now Oh, come to me. But there's lots of, like, Gavali and stuff, and Nusra Fazili Khan, and all of those um, fantastic singers. I love Pakistani culture, but Pakistani culture has been erased, and what's been put in its place, and I think me and Yasmin had a bit of a disagreement about this uh, when we did our last podcast. Mm. I do think this is Arab imperialism, um, and you can you can see it, this erasure of uh, every culture that... Uh, Arab Islam touches so this is something that the Saudis are doing very much so you know um, and we're quite quick the West is quite quick to critique and apologize for um, you know Western imperialism and colonialism however right now what we're seeing is Arab imperialism and it's erasing everything it touches there's this fantastic um, meme online that you can see where they look at the 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 clothing of women from, you know, a dozen or so um, Muslim countries, what it used to look like 10 years ago and what they now look like. 10 years ago, you could see the different outfits and they were stunning. They looked so beautiful. Now, the women are all dressed in black, their faces covered, you know, you, you can barely see their eyes, the slits of their, their niqab measured. Um, so this is Arab imperialism and the erasure, uh, uh, the erosion of our culture and our, um, you know, the things, our rich history that we used to have. Oh, yeah, no, okay. Um, I'm a little bit older. Well, no, I'm a little bit older than you. I'm going to be 50 this year. And the same thing, like I grew up, I was born in India. My mom grew up in yeah. Karachi. Uh, my family moved to Canada when I was six. And I, I would go back to India and I would see it. And 
Uh, and then one thing I noticed in the late 80s, and it, that was here, uh, some yeah. cousins or something like that came from India or like distant relations. And, mm-hmm. okay, you know the Urdu word khudafiz, right? Just you yeah. know, God, God yeah. be with you, basically. So I said that to them, and one of them turned around and said, no, 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 now we say alafiz. And I was like, what is this thing, alafiz? Oh, yeah. well, because, you know, khuda is not the Arabic word for God. I'm like, so? You know, yeah. and it was same thing. Okay, something simple as well was uh, Ramzan. Before that, I'd always, my parents would say Ramzan. I'd always hear Ramzan. And that was the Urdu way. Yeah, yeah. I still say it. Yeah, exactly. And now it's Ramadan because that's more Arabic sounding. Uh, just yeah. one little thing like the Arabization. I know what you're saying. And I, you know, I use the term myself. But I think yeah. what Yasmin was trying to get at, and I like, I don't want to put words in her mouth, and I don't want to, like, you know, it's it's not a, it's it's a small thing. But I think what she was getting at was that Arabs themselves, when Islam started, Arabs were the first people to lose their individual cultures. Oh, of course, yeah, I can see. Yeah, yeah, and so now it is Arabs, it is Arab states pushing pushing this out. You know, mainly Saudi, but you also have Qatar and Kuwait yeah. putting money towards yeah. this. Uh, and it is. You know, Arab, and it's the language, and it is, but it's yeah. now what started out as, you know, local Horeshi culture, if you want to call it that, because it was the Horeshi tribe, right? That that yeah. spread out and, you know, covered the entire Arabian Peninsula. That is now being commonly called Arab culture. But if you go back 1400 years, like I said, I, I you know, it's, I, I get where everyone's coming from, but I think that's what Yasmin was trying to get at was Arabs lost yeah. their culture first. And that I was. I completely understand that, but I think also this term is really, really important, and I'll tell you why. So, two things. Uh, in terms of when we're talking about Western imperialism, like we don't, uh, we know fully, completely that uh, you know when we're talking about it, we're not talking about poor people from the West. You know, most Westerners are against Western foreign policy, but we still call it Western foreign policy. This is why I use the term Arabization, because those influential, powerful people from these Arab nations are influencing the world and shifting the, the, um, the you know, the, they're changing the whole of the Muslim world and even the non-muslim world even in the uk for crying out loud i when when i was a kid we used to call it the quran now people call it the quran (laughs) sorry you know it's ridiculous i hate it every time i hear somebody talking like a fucking arab and they're not fucking arab i'm like why are you talking like that if i find it really offensive so they're taking over language food clothes everything this is arab imperialism and I, like that's why i kind of use the term arabization intentionally i know people find it controversial and i kind of i think it but i still think it's an important one because of uh you know it doesn't by any it doesn't mean all of a sudden that i'm saying that all arabs um but i am saying that this is this is a Arab force that's kind of influencing the whole of the world, and I I still feel very stubborn about that. I guess. Oh, no, no. I like- no I mean, look, look, I'm not gonna you know argue too much against that. It's just I think I was just trying to frame what Yasmin had said based on how I yeah. understood it, and so I know I, I get where you're coming from. Okay, even myself, like my family, um, like my from my dad's side, uh, come from Yemen, right? So, but yeah. it was five generations in India, so mm. um, but. I see my family and when they, 
uh, recite the Quran or when they, you know, there, you know, there's some of them that have say mashallah and bismillah every second word. Um, <laughs> but then, like some of my, I've met some of my dad's family from you know, who live in the Middle East who are native Arab speakers, and when I hear them pronounce, you know, recite the Quran or, you know, say anything, as opposed yeah. to my family in India who don't speak Arabic who don't understand it, but they yeah. put on this. They put on these airs, and it just it sounds so forced and so wrong. And then, does, I, does. and then you know the the Arab speaking ones sometimes would look at them like, "What are you doing? That's not yeah. you know." And it's, yeah. I I don't know why. Uh, okay, I, this is going to be a little bit off tangent. It, it reminds me of this friend of mine growing up. He was Gujarati. My family is from yeah. Hyderabad, and mm-hmm. when you know we spoke amongst ourselves or with other friends, mm-hmm. there was you know he spoke like I am right now with, without any hint of any accent or anything like that. You know, well, I guess to you, I seem like I have an accent, but you know, we spoke like Canadians, but yeah. when he talked to his parents, he sounded like a poo. It was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he didn't notice it. Like we would point it out to him. He's like, no, I don't. And he's like, no, yeah, you do. And he's like, and he didn't notice that he was switching into this accent when he was talking to his parents. But when he was talking to us, he wasn't. <laughs> That's so true. Do you know, I'm thinking back, and I'm pretty certain when I speak to my grandparents, because I don't do it with my parents, the, the few interactions that I do have, because I don't speak to my parents very often, but um, when I, when I, and I haven't spoken to my grandparents for over a decade now, but when I used to speak to my grandparents, and they're both alive still, um, I'd do the same. Like, it was this Punjabi accent that would be placed on top of my normal English language, and I have no idea why. But I think it's different. I think in that sense, it's different. I don't think, I think with the, with the Arab accent that a lot of Muslims are adopting now, um, I think it is very forced. Because I, I, you know, when I was doing it with my grandparents, it wasn't a conscious thing. I knew my grandparents talked English in a certain way, and it was just the way we interacted as a as a close knit family. Like you know, it it naturally just kind of came out like that. And it, I think it's very different to when it's when it's forced. And I think with the uh, Muslim community now. There's been this huge attempt to, um, you know, get closer to uh, Arab Islam uh, and Wahhabi Islam. That they are forcing these this um, Arabian accent whenever they're talking. You know, whenever they're using any Arab word, and it just makes me cringe. I find it it leaves a really like icky taste in my mouth. I don't understand why they're doing it really. Well, okay, I don't know when the last time you were back to um, either Pakistan or India, but like I was just in India last year, and I and I go back every few years. I have family there, and I like you know visiting. Uh, but I, I, you know, this love hate relationship with the Arabs, you know, yeah. Oh, the Arabs are the most pious, the greatest, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And then at the, then they turn around. Like my cousin was working there; he was doing um, uh, refrigeration repair, yeah. and you know. Oh, he's got a job in Saudi Arabia. He's so, you know, he's, it's, it's amazing. He's so close to Mecca, all this. And then he would come back and he's like, oh, I hate them. They're awful. They treat me badly. And then as soon as religion yeah. comes up, they're the, you know, Arabs are the, the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it, it's so bizarre in, the, in, in South Asia. It's the same in Pakistan. So, I mean, I haven't been back for a long time, but I still hear quite a lot of the stories and stuff. Um, it's exactly the same. And, you know, my mum's dad, um, left before my mum was married. My mum was married at 15. He left long, long before she was married to go to Saudi and work in Saudi. Um, 
and there's lots of my family members I know that are now living in Saudi, working and, uh, and sending money back, and they think it's you know a fantastic thing. They do also talk about how the fact they're not allowed to own property, own own anything essentially. The, you have to rent it from an Arab, um, but also um, yes, there is this kind of I guess fetishization of the fact that they're like close to Makkah. I don't really know why it's. Uh, well, I do know. You know, if you've grown up Muslim, I guess you do understand why they're so excited about being close to it. Really, I mean, I remember when I, because I went to Umrah with my grandparents, um, which is like the mini pilgrimage. Um, but like, um, uh, it's it's hyped up so much. I was told that if I die out there, I'll be going straight to heaven. Um, so I remember, because I was uh, I was nineteen then. Um, I remember hoping to die out there because I thought I'd be absolved of all my all my sins. Um, so you know, it's hyped up a hell of a lot in South Asia, particularly. Um, but also, <laughs> I did have my ass pinched out there. Uh, I did have my boob groped out there um, whilst I was walking around the Gaba, and I remember kicking off. Um, and everybody attacked me. Everybody in the uh, doing the dwarf stopped and started shouting "bidda bidda" to me, uh, rather than anything to the guy that had groped me. Um, but also, I remember the drive from the airport to Makkah, and I remember um, that the the road split at one point, and it was one road for Muslims and one road for non-Muslims. Um, and if we had that in Britain or if we had that in Canada, there would be, you know, complete outcry. But it's okay because it's Muslims doing it. So when Muslims do it, it's completely acceptable. Bigotry is only acceptable when it comes from Muslims. Yeah, I mean, again, like that's going back to what I said, like the benevolent bigotry. And I mean, I, it's something I, I, I said flippantly a while ago or I wrote flippantly. And it's just, you know, they can't see the victims for the brown people. They're, they're so <laughs> focused on being not racist that they don't want to call out anything because you know it's well it's a you know it's a Shia killing Sunni or Sunni killing Shia who yeah. do you you know like oh my god if I call one person out I'm calling out a brown person so I can't do it and it's just again this goes back to you know Islam is a race right yeah you know it's it, so whenever we talk about a, you know a white pedophile does that mean that we're saying that every white person is a pedophile whenever we're talking about rape does that mean that we're suggesting that every man is a rapist it's fucking ridiculous it's absolutely ridiculous when we're talking about parliamentarians that have you know um uh, screwed around their ex uh, their um, expenses are we saying that every mp is a fraud which actually i would probably say <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, i think that goes yeah, it kind of goes hand in hand with politics. I, okay, that's one thing I'll say about like places like India and Pakistan. I, I say it's a more honest form of corruption because everyone knows yeah. it's there. Everyone knows it's going on. And, and it, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, hand on heart, completely. I've said this before as well. At least you know, hands down, that it's happening. They're unashamed in their corruption. Whereas here, you know, they try and hide it badly. We all know that they're corrupt. If, if you've decided to go into politics, you've probably got something that you're hiding, right? Yeah. Um, that, that's fantastic, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but it's... I mean, the, 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 like this, this whole racism thing and this just, okay, we can't do it because they're brown or we can't do it. I mean, I honestly find that so condescending and I yeah. find that, I find that far more bigoted and harder to deal with 
than someone calling me a packy or a raghead or anything like that. Like, like that is easy to deal with. I, I know what that is, but this attitude that, oh, we're, you know, we have to go fix your problems that not only do we have to go fix your problems, you know, you were too stupid and we had to, we were the ones that caused your problems. So, you know, that's why it's just like, no, you know, like, like I mentioned, like, you know, the Shia Sunni thing, there was this case in Pakistan a couple of years ago where, uh, Sunnis attacked a Shia wedding. Then when the people went to the hospital, they waited at the hospital and a guy blew himself there, blew himself up there as a hospital, as the ambulance was coming in with the victims. And, you know, this has nothing to do with Western foreign policy. This has nothing to do with American foreign policy or UK. You know, this is sectarian violence that has been going on for 1400 years. But, you know, you're still racist if you call it out. And it just, I don't get it. But the thing is, right, so I get asked this when I deliver professional training around harmful traditional practices. Somebody says to me every single time, but what about, you know, allegations of racism, allegations of bigotry? And I have to remind them. I get those accusations. It doesn't matter what color you are. When they're shitting themselves, that they're about to get busted for being the disgusting perverts or bigots or, you know, homophobes that they are, they will play victim and use the the easiest trope that they can. For white people, it's racism. For us, it's Islamophobes. So, so, and you, the thing is, you either, you have to just make a decision. You make a decision. Are you going to stand up to it or are you just going to cower away and give up? Because if you're going to cower away and give up, fair enough, I respect that. But if you're going to stand in between and try and, um, you know, be manipulative and say nothing to do with Islam, nothing to do, they're all victims. To, just today, a dickhead journalist, Owen Jones, who's a cross-bellend, um, wrote an article about these protests outside this Birmingham school saying, you know, poor victim Muslims, nothing really to do with Islam. Islam isn't a homophobic religion. Well, how much of the Quran and the Hadith have you read, mate? Why don't you talk about the actual contents of these books? Because that's all we're, we're focusing on. And these, these bigoted parents, they've jumped from excuse to excuse. First, it were, first you know, they didn't want their kids being taught about it, simple as. Then it was that they, their kids were too young. Then it was because they weren't consulted, which they were. They just lied about it. And this is something new that started happening, by the way. Like, I've been involved in a few debates now where the, the, the Muslim uh, person that I'm debating is just outright lying. I was uh, debating an Ahmadi fundamentalist um, the other day, which, you know, I support them because I understand the persecution that they're facing in Pakistan, but this guy was just out and out lying. No, Islam isn't misogynistic. Islam isn't homophobic. What problem do you have with Islamic homophobia? Why is that a problem, you know? And then, like, I was debating a a hijabi woman about um, uh, the hijab in Iran. And again, same thing. No, these women are completely liberated. There's no woman that's persecuted. There's no woman that's imprisoned. You're lying. <laughs> are you for real? Yeah, is this act real? I mean, and then there was you know, all the news news uh, news stories and reporting about the uh, what, what's her name uh, Nasreen. Uh, I can't I can't remember her last name. The lawyer she just got in prison for 38 years and 148 lashes. I mean, exactly. you know, it just wouldn't you know. I, I don't understand it, but I, I, I'm, I'm just going to go off on a little bit of a tangent because I just thought it was really funny. Um, yeah. When you called Owen Jones a bellend. I used to, <laughs> I, I used to work with, uh, I did a lot of work with the military and I was working with some like uh, you know British military. It was, it was in Afghanistan. Yeah. 
and this was the term bellend came coming up. Now, I, <laughs> I, I, I I caught the gist of like they meant that the person was. I, I thought they were being stupid or something, but I'd never heard that slang before. And I asked, and you know, like everyone did what you just did. They started laughing, and then like they explained, and it was just like, oh, so that's what you mean. <laughs> Sorry, I just when you said Bellend, it just made me laugh. <laughs> no, no, it's fantastic. I guess it's like we're, we're so used to going off on these tirades that I don't necessarily think that it, like that our language isn't universal. Particularly, some of our slang isn't universal. I'll make it easier for your listeners. He's a dick. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no. The evidence is right in front of him, and he's just he's looking at the evidence and going, "That's not true." And this is what we're finding time and again, time and again. That's what we're up against yeah. now. People looking at facts and evidence and saying that's not true. I can't see that. Okay. It, I've never known this kind of fucking stupidity. Just absolute stupidity. Like I just I don't know what to do with it anymore. Well, okay. I've been speaking out about you know like this whole identity politics thing where I understand identity matters. Like you know to an extent that okay. I'm talking about my personal story and this is why my identity in this matters and this is how I can relate to whatever's happening. But to base politics and policy based on identity or who you're going to support based on identity as opposed yeah. to values, I really get wrong. But I think what really... It was right after the Christchurch thing and I saw all, you know, and I shouldn't say it like the Christchurch thing, like the terrorist attack that happened in Christchurch. Um, I don't want to callous about it. Um, you know, it was horrible. But right afterwards, I would, friends of mine who would put up these things that, you know, oh, it's all the fault of whiteness. Not that it was the fault of a white supremacist or people who are white supremacists. You know, you know forget the whole thing about you know, people who speak out about Islam were to blame for it. But like, it was all the fault of white people. And they were, these were white people putting up these things. One was a pyramid saying, at the bottom is whiteness. And then if you, you know, it builds up to white supremacy and whiteness will lead to white supremacy. And then there was another one that was like a paragraph long saying the same kind of BS. And I'm like, okay. So we, we had people, members of ours that were contacted and CEMB was contacted saying, are you happy now? As if we had instigated this, something else that I saw post Christchurch attack. And it was a horrific attack. Of course, um, you'd have to be like an actual callous monster not to give a shit about what happened there. And never have we advocated any violence to, against anybody, even that we disagree with. And I, I disagree with a lot of people. Um, doesn't mean I want them dead. There is a difference, though. For me, personally, there's a lot of people that say, you know, just because you disagree with someone doesn't mean you hate them. I think that it's really easy to hate somebody that you disagree with. Doesn't mean that I want them dead. Doesn't mean that I want any harm to come to them. That's a major difference. I differentiate between that. Because I think it's really easy when you start having disagreements with somebody to think, oh, I could never see your fucking face again and I would be really, really happy. But that doesn't mean that you want any harm coming to them. So that's really, really important. But there was a lot of people that got in touch with us and said, are you happy now? We would never, why would we, ha we be happy about that? But I also saw, so there's a few things that happened after the Christchurch attack. I saw a post on Facebook uh, uh, done by a Muslim man who saw that 300 Muslim people had converted after the Christchurch attacks to Islam. Now, he said, uh, his post said, um, uh, this is fantastic. We should have more attacks on innocent Muslims to create more Muslims. We lost 50, we gained 300. It was a benefit of 250. 
Somebody posted that. Post oh my the God. Like that's... Exactly. exactly. And also these very same people that are saying that whiteness is a problem will also be the same motherfuckers that turn around that and say every time there's an attack, a, a terrorist attack at the hands of some Muslim fundamentalist, they will be the z- very same bastards to say this has got nothing to do with Islam, this has got nothing to do with Muslims, when it's got everything to do with Islam. No. Jihad is a fundamental tenet of Islam. That, that, but that's why I brought up the whiteness thing, is because that's when, like, for, for a while there, I was, I was thinking about, and I spoke to a couple of people um, about this, and I, you know, I said, okay, you know how Sam Harris had done the concentric circles about Islam, like jihad, and then you know the fundam- like the uh, groups like Care or Isna, like the the Muslim Brotherhood, those type of groups. I said, okay, and I started talking about doing that. Okay, we'll take white supremacy and take white people, but it it struck me that if you're thinking that this is a fault of all of whiteness, and you're putting that, you know, like I knew that people would use identity before, but it's like okay, you're never going to understand that I'm only talking about an ideology. If you can't understand that I'm talking about, if I'm talking about a white supremacist that does something that I don't mean all white people, and you're automatically including all white people, there's no way I can tell you that I'm only talking about pernicious ideology within the text of the religion, not the people themselves. Like, I don't want my family hurt. I don't want anything to happen to my mom. I don't want anything to happen to my my sister or, you know, my nephew, my brother-in-law. Like, I... or even innocent people I don't know I don't want anything to happen to anyone innocent exactly exactly and it's important to be able to say I dislike you but I don't want any harm to come to you why why does that why why by talking about the the ideas or falling out with somebody I've had friends that I've fallen out with before doesn't mean I want them to be you know want them to die or want them to be killed quite happily never see them again but that's very, very different to wanting harm to come to them. And I think it's a really, really offensive thing to say to somebody that because you disagree with their ideas or disagree with them or dislike them for that matter, that you want harm to come to them. I think that's deeply, deeply offensive. But also with um, with this, uh, with those concentric circles about uh, that Sam Harris did, actually my bar for funda- fundamentalist Muslims is very very low I think some people are quite happy to have discussions about homosexuality you know uh, whether it's a sin whether it's acceptable and all that kind of things uh, for me on a very personal level I think if you have a lower bar for women and homosexuals than you do for yourself as a practicing Muslim then instantly that puts you in the category of fundamentalist Muslim because then what you're saying is some people are less than me if you're not championing equality as a Muslim then you instantly are thrown into the category of fundamentalist Muslim. That's why that cat is that category was so 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 broad, um, because it's holding some people to a much much lesser standard. And I think I don't think Sam Harris, uh, you know, uh, said uh, uh, made it that kind of broad. But for me, it is if instantly the moment somebody says that homosexuals don't have a right, or even the fact that they think it's a choice. I think that's a you know that's. Quite a, a blink of you. Okay, uh, you know, like something like that. I think we can. You know, the, the, there there are gray areas, and you can say, okay, what I consider fundamentalist, you don't. We both consider it wrong, but I, I might consider that person a conservative, where you consider them a fundamentalist. I mean, like like I said, that is. I mean, and I, again, when he talked about it, it was a couple minute. You know, that was famously when Ben Affleck called him, the, you know, gross and racist, and um, so. <laughs> so yeah, but I mean, it's it was it was a 
he didn't go into it in too much detail, so I don't, I don't think he... But he, like, I, again, we can talk about that, and I agree with you. If, someone, if you're saying that by the dint of someone being you know, a woman or someone being part of the LGBTQ community, that they're lesser than you, yeah, I would agree that that's a fundamentalist view, and that's you know, a very literal interpretation, and there is absolutely... I would say there's no not much humanity in that view either. So it's, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I have no problem with that. And I, you know, not a defense of Sam Harris or anything, but I, like I said, I don't think he went into it in that much detail, but, you no. know, but I mean, you know, like I said, if I, if, if we differed on that and I said, okay, well, you know, that's a conservative person. That's not really a fundamentalist. You know, a fundamentalist would be someone who wants to put in policy that affects that or a conservative might just think that. I mean, like I said, the, you know, you that's could, yeah. Islamists. Yeah. The, the difference is Islamists want to do that. So Islamists want to affect um, uh, politics and policy. Fundamentalists aren't as uh, uh, they're not necessarily involved in the political, sh- you know, shaping politics and mm-hmm. policy and stuff. And that's something that is happening right now. We actually do have Islamists making policies and suggest you know set, uh, political suggestions and in, uh, in in the UK right now for example we've had um, there's an all-party parliamentary group for British Muslims that have just suggested a definition of Islamophobia that's monstrous they've said that you're not allowed to say things like Islam was spread by the sword which is just fact they're saying that you can't talk about the fact that Muhammad was a pedophile which is just fact so there's lots of things that they're trying to deny us the right to speak about they're saying on the one hand that they will allow free speech but if you i mean like the doc i read the whole document it was like 70 something pages but if you don't have the time to read the whole document all you have to do is read the last um few pages the conclusion and that will show you that actually that although they throughout the document lie that they're not planning on preventing free speech that's exactly what the conclusion uh says it will do because you're not allowed to state fact um uh, you know, I, the, I i read that document and i was yeah. I, I heard about it and i said okay i gotta read this i was horrified um yeah. there's a group in the united states and luckily what you have, like that document and what's going on in the United States doesn't really affect me We have because I'm in Canada, but we have some of our own issues here with things similar to that. But yeah, the, the CARE in the United States wants to do the same thing. So the CARE is the Council of American Islamic Relations. Um, I, I, they're a front for the Muslim Brotherhood and for Hamas. But anyway, yeah. they want to put that in like where, you know, saying Islamic terrorism or Islamic jihad is then Islamophobia, which is a term I cannot stand. Dan, let's yeah, call it. None you know, of us. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's it's just it causes so much issues. Uh, and then there was yeah. a there was a private members bill brought into the um, so Ottawa, the the province just next to next to Quebec, uh, where I live, mm-hmm. is uh, oh sorry Ontario, I should say not Ottawa. Uh, the they brought in a private members bill um, mm-hmm. where the same thing they they want if you say Islamic terrorism or Islamic jihad, you're an Islamophobe. And it's, yeah, I mean, you know, I am, I am an absolutist when it comes to free speech. I think the limit should be what they have in the United States. Um, yes, yeah. which is like I, think I, I agree. Actually, I, I didn't used to, but I do think I agree because uh, uh, um, I had this I had this discussion with a friend recently. Um, uh, I, I, it used to kind of make me 
feel a bit uncomfortable, the idea of not being able to openly make really, really bigoted statements. Um, but I think, and Rushdie said this in an interview recently, um, that it's, it's essential because otherwise those ideas go underground and then the movements that swell out of those underground uh, hostilities that exist within your communities are far more dangerous than, um, you know, just the initial the initial statements and views that, are, uh, that those individuals have. Um, so I think, yeah, I, th I think I agree with you in terms of um, that, that bar. Um, I think that's what we need internationally, really. Yeah, I mean, I also, um, like, my my take on it, too, is that if you, you know, if you use the stifle the speech, so I, I go, like, if we're, you know, like with Islam, you go back to 9-11, and I, I put that, 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 that is a huge dividing point on, like, how all this talk changed. And I think one mm -hmm. of the, one of the, you know, one of the unintended consequences of 9-11 mm. that's was the rise of the narrative. So you yeah. had, you know, everyone started talking about, oh, the narrative around this, the narrative around that. And maybe it was correlated and one had nothing to do with the other, but it just seems that after 9-11, we, we kept hearing this talk of narrative, which I, I'm, beginning, I'm beginning to hate that word. Like, like all this political <laughs> correctness is beginning to make me hate language. I mean, narrative was yeah. a perfectly good word. Now it's got this some you know underhanded connotation to it. Uh, yeah, but it's. I agree. I agree, and that I feel like that as well. There's like I've got a list of words now. Believe it or not, and I was thinking about this this morning. I've got a list of words that I can't tolerate anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, respect, offense, uh, privilege. Oh God, um, problematic. <sighs> Problematic. I was just gonna say that. Oh my god, I hate it, and I, I can't help it. You have, have you heard that song? Um, there's a there's a there's, uh, Richard Dawkins posted a song on the internet a few years ago, and there was controversy about it. It was a big red and like some Islamists doing like a song on a piano, um, and uh, it, like I just hear that song playing in my head every time I hear, hear the word problematic, but. It, the, yeah, you're right. Like they're taking language away from us. This is and uh, where, where, I don't know where we are now. Yeah, I, I mean, like how, how can you talk about things? And that's that. Okay, the the stifling of the speech. Mm. One part of it, though. Okay, you know these things going underground. I'm not going to disagree with that, but it's also and a lot of people brought this up. Uh, like when when you know people started talking about Islam right after 9/11. Yeah. If you be brought up, if you keep shutting down people like yourself or, you know, yeah. uh, Mariam Namazi, again, someone, you know, I respect greatly, or yeah. Yasmin or anyone who's trying to talk reasonably about this, mm. you leave that space for the bad actors. And of I'm, course. And I'm sick and tired of it. And, okay, I'm not a huge voice and I, you know, but I'm not going to let the bad actors take this space because mm. you're, you're going to have people on one end, like, you know, Owen Jones, and you're going to have people on the other end, like, you know, Anjum Chowdhury. And, yeah. you know, nothing's going to get solved by those people. They're, they're both doing things wrongly as far as I'm concerned. And for, you know, for different reasons, but they're just, the effects the same. It's shutting down speech and people are getting hurt and killed. And, 
and nothing's being done. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the problem is that there's people in between, right? So what we, what uh, like I tend to, I hate going to places where everybody agrees with me. I think it's a waste of time. You know, nothing is achieved from sitting and talking with people that just are going to nod along like idiots to, to everything you say uh, with the greatest of respect to those people because obviously they're, they're decent human beings. But um, the... I like to talk to people who have a difference of opinion. I like to argue with them because that's what changed my mind, you know, um, listening to those arguments and really like there were things that I was hearing when I was a believer, there were things that I was hearing and thinking that makes me feel so uncomfortable. Why does it make me feel uncomfortable? Because it's true, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Um, and I like, I remember one of the very first things I heard from CEMB uh, and like I'd been an atheist for, um, quite some time at that point but I didn't know that I was an atheist because it's not something that's not even a term that's used in our households really is in a Pakistani household you're never going to hear things like that um I just knew that I didn't believe in God and that was the very first statement that I made as a 15 year old to my mum but um I remember hearing from the council of ex-Muslims you know ex-Muslims have done everything a lot of the time they've shagged they've taken drugs they've drank they've done everything there's this one difficult point that they get stuck at which is pork <laughs> yeah thought, shit that's true <laughs> which made me then go out and try a bacon butty and I genuinely thought I was going to die it took me two years to do it I went out and tried a, a, like butty is a, a word for, for a sandwich in, in the UK um, so it's like uh, proper English slang so I went out and tried a bacon sandwich um, and I remember when I went to sleep I thought I was going to die <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I uh, actually genuinely thought the, the sky, you know, the ground was going to open up and like thunder was going to come down on me. I was so scared, so scared. Nothing happened. <laughs> okay, I I'm a carnivore. I love meat, so I've never I never had that problem whatsoever. Um, like <laughs> even before I even like you know, admitted to myself that I don't believe in this stuff, I I went I was all in it except for, and even to this day bacon because i don't know if you your parents ever ate it but my parents used to eat this thing called bumble machi which was like a dried salted eel All and right. the, the smell of that cooking and i tried it as a kid and i just i just spat it out right away the smell of that cooking reminds me of the smell of bacon or bacon oh. reminds me of the smell of that and i just just the smell of it makes me want to throw up so i, I just no but like everything else like like i was such a carnivore my parents tell me this because i remember when we were still living in india apparently at one point I told them that we should keep an elephant in the backyard so that whenever we needed meat, we had had an elephant to go cut some meat off because I, I ate so much meat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless. It's funny. Because, um, I feel I feel really sad for you because bacon's one of my most favorite things. So I, I now don't eat a huge amount of meat, actually. Um, but I do still love bacon. So is it like... Is it normal bacon or can you can you have smoky bacon? Does it make I, a difference? No, nah, it just it just reminds me of it and it turns me off. Like it, it's, uh. <laughs> I you know, but it, but that's that's the only thing. Like it's and it's not because of any you know hang up or anything like that. It was just that smell and that taste. Just ugh. like I remember going <laughs> camping with friends and you know we'd forget butter or something sometimes. So to cook the eggs, I'd have to wait until my friends cooked bacon in the pan, then I'd cook my eggs in that grease. And it was just, you know, it was like fighting back to nausea, but I need to eat breakfast and I'm camping and I have to eat. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, dear. <laughs> 
Yeah, but I mean, it's but you know, like like these little things that you know, it it we're we're laughing at it, and it is some, but it sticks in the back of your head because you're told, you know, I mean, especially that, like it's. I, I remember we're constantly told, you know, when we went shopping, um, go down to the corner store as little kids, like you know, eight or nine years old, and my parents like pick up a loaf of bread, and I'd read the ingredients of the bread to make sure there was no lard in it. Yeah, or yeah. if you're buying a snack, you read that, and they're like little kids shouldn't have to be that conscious of what snacks they're eating, you know? Like- no, exactly, exactly. So, like, I remember I have a bit of a theory about the whole pork thing, by the way. So, um, with with our young people, I think the reason why uh, ex-Muslims can do everything bar eating pork, and I, I mean, I know some ex-Muslims that have been, you know, uh, non-believers for you know, five, six years, but they still can't eat pork. Um, I think it's because the brainwashing around pork starts, the, the, that's one of the very first things that starts. Even before you can read the Quran, even before they can tell you about like, you know, uh, sex and like adultery mm. and fornication and uh, and beer and stuff like that, because that all comes later. You're not going to go to the pint, uh, go to the uh, pub for a pint at five years old but you mm. are likely to buy sweets as a five-year-old that might have gelatin in them so you're not you know you're you're forced to be a bit more conscious about that from a much much younger age so i think because the brainwashing starts so early around that it's a it's a much much harder one to combat for a lot of ex-muslims um but i've got two nieces um they're beautiful, but my pa- uh, my my brother, his partner's white British. Uh, they're not married. They've been together for over a decade, and now they have two daughters. And uh, a couple of years ago, uh, not a couple of years ago, sorry, last year, I went to their birthday party, and uh, I'd taken like a huge bag of sweets because it was their birthday, so they were staying up all night. Um, and uh, my mum was there. And the girls really took to this uh, this bag of marshmallows, and they just they'd eat one, go back to the table, pick up four, eat four, go back to the table, pick up more. So they were just absolutely like in love with them. When my mum came over to me, and she was like, "At least don't give my daughters pork. Like, you don't have the right to do that." So I took the sweets into the kitchen, and I told you know my sister-in-law, I was like, "Look, so this is what my mum's just said." And she took the sweets out of my hands and she, she said to my mum, it's their birthday, they're going to eat whatever the hell they want to eat. But it wouldn't have been so easy for me to do that to my mum. Yeah. It was my kid, you know. Okay, but, but this gelatin thing, okay, like I remember growing up and, you know, there were, when we moved to to Montreal, there was only one mosque and up until the, the later 80s before they started getting more than just, you know, a couple. But I, we'd hear these things, oh, so and so said you can't eat cheese because it's got rennet in it, and then I'm like, who makes up these rules? Like I remember I lived in Vancouver for a while and I just moved there, and I mean, normally if I'm you know if I'm going buying, I just go to the local supermarket buy whatever meat. But if I'm cooking Indian food, I like buying halal meat. I just think it tastes better in the food. Maybe it's just you know, mm. growing up, uh, whatever. Like I'm, it's psychological thing. I don't know. But I so yeah. I went to this halal meat shop. And I also do like like calf's brains and things like you know I I, I love that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, so, uh, so, <laughs> I, so so I asked the guy and I'm speaking earlier with the guy and I said you know do you have you know can I get and he tells me that no uh, it, the calf's brain is not uh, like you can't get brain because it's not halal it can never be halal because the brain sits in blood. And then, like, right. And then you know I called up my my dad and I was like 
because he's the one at home who would go to the, the halal butcher shop. And buy. I said, can you get brain, you know, cash brain? She's like, yeah. You know, I said, well, they, the people here told me this. And he's like, he goes, where did they get that from? <laughs> and, and I, so I, I, it's just like arbitrary rules that someone just decides. I, I have no idea how this is thought up. Like, okay, But this is it, right? <laughs> Nobody knows what the what like which is the right school of thought within within islam everybody has their own interpretations and i guess that that's a good reason to doubt really if you can't create like if you can't make a, a, a an idea easy for every follower of yours to believe you can't make it truly universal then to me it has no credibility to say that like um islam is a universal religion for me that instantly you know, it's so easy to debunk that because why why have it in, in Arabic? Why have it in classical Arabic? Why have it so that only a small proportion of people can understand it? Why have it all, why have so many sects within it? I've got a friend who wonderfully says, um, uh, I hated more Muslims when I was a Muslim than I do now as an ex-Muslim. <laughs> but that's true though. I mean, okay, I was, I worked in Bosnia for a while and um yeah you know, a lot of the Bosnian Muslims and Bosnian Muslims, at least back when I was there, I think there might be a little bit more of heart getting a little bit hard, more hard line, but you know, they, they were aside from the pork thing. They, they weren't really practicing. I mean, they would go to mosque and stuff, but a lot of the ones that I spoke of, spoke with, I'd say about 50% were resentful for the fact that, they couldn't practice their faith without having to learn to at least read another language, you know, let alone yeah. understand it. You know, they were very resentful of that. And yeah. like you said, how can you say that's universal? And it's just, you know, but I, I use that to my advantage because when I have been told that, oh, well, you never spoke Arabic, so you didn't understand the Quran, so you weren't really a true Muslim. And so that's why <laughs> you left. I, I turn it around on my family when they tell me that it's because I'm like, well, you guys don't speak Arabic. So are you not true Muslims because you don't understand it well enough? If I was, if I didn't understand it well enough to have left, you don't understand it well enough to believe. Yeah. Exactly, but also like so. Uh, this is this is something that gets thrown at us quite a lot. So I've read the the Quran in English like you know four or five times now, um, uh, and now I've read it more often since leaving Islam than when I was a Muslim. I read it in Arabic lots of time when I was when I was a Muslim, but. What is the purpose of reading a book in a language you don't understand several times again and again? I actually feel quite resentful of, about it now because, I mean, I've got a library in my house um, and there's so many books. I've got more books than I've read, to my shame. But I also feel angry at the, the fact that I was made to read the same book over and over again when I could have studied a whole you know an entire body of literature in the time that was spent wasted reading the same book over and over again doing the same crappy prayer again and again this mundane repetitiveness that comes with islam is so unbelievably boring and i just thought of something actually uh, going back to some of the racism stuff that we were talking about earlier i don't know if you followed um did you see any of um what was happening with sinead o'connor in the uk Oh yeah, I mean, okay, I, I saw a little bit of it. I, you know, she said she converted to Islam, then she made a couple of things, but she was rambling and incoherent, and I just, yeah. you know, I was. This is one of my problems, right? So Islam and all religions actually do this. I have to say. So I worked in psychiatric in a psychiatric unit a few years ago, um, 
and they had a chaplain. Now, when people are that desperate, they're looking for something, anything that desperately that will help them, and they think that religion is going to help them, but it obviously doesn't, you know. Um, Sinead O'Connor, months before she uh, converted to Islam, um, had had sent out a video, uh, like uploaded a video, where you could see she was so desperately unwell. Um, you know, she was crying at the camera saying that everybody that loves me isn't here right now. Um, and living with mental health is very, very hard. But within that time frame, between her first video where she was very, very distressed and her video where she'd, you know, converted to Islam, um, something had happened. I, I feel like there was some exploitation of her vulnerability and uh, to bring her into Islam. You know, and this is something that Islam does very, very well. You know, if you're lonely, you're alone, you, ha you, you have nobody, Islam is going to give you a community. But it's not a real community because it's a conditional community. It's not, you're not accepted as you are. You have to do certain things. You have to, you know, believe certain things. So it's not, you're not gifted a, a community unconditionally. Um, and then after converting, she says quite openly, I hate all white people. Yeah, but that's just it. Like, okay, I mean, I this is the opposite of what I'm about to say. But I, I like, again, I've been joking around just because, like I said, you know, the language and everything. And I started calling it the, um, the transracializing effect of problematic comments. So if you're a person of color and you yeah. don't think right or you don't speak right, all of a sudden you can become white and you're fair game. So, like, you know, someone like you or myself, we speak out against Islam, and oh my God, you're homophobes, you're racist, you're bigots, yeah. and it's well, it's like, wait a minute, how? And and this is white people, or or that term like native informant or house Muslim, and yeah. you and they'll call you a racist house Muslim, yeah, unironically yeah. without realizing how racist that comment is. But oh no, you said something wrong, so you're not really a person of color anymore. You're white. And in her, it's in her case, she somehow gained some brownness. I don't understand. Yeah. Like I just... exactly, but this is it, right? Nobody, not one single person, questioned where she got that statement from. Because you, you have to bear in mind that she was a very, very, very sick woman. She would have had to have heard that from somebody to repeat that kind of shit. So uh, my concern was that nobody picked that up. Nobody picked up the racism that she had learned very quickly from this uh, from this conversion that she had undergone. So nobody said anything about it. Um, that was very very worrying to me. Yeah. Okay. What you were saying there about that, like I, I was speak. I, I was thinking about this, and I was speaking to a couple of people about this, like. In the 80s, um, especially in the U.S., like when all the, the gangs, the, the gang warfare was happening, um, uh, they were, you know, how like these gangs would go into high schools and find the loners or white supremacists would be doing that as well. They would find the loners, the people who were alienated and they would prey on them and they would prey on that. They would use that fact to get yeah. them to join the groups. And I was like, okay, you hear about it from the, you know, like, things like the mosques uh, and from community centers and they do the same thing like they, they find the ones who are are vulnerable and they're weak and then parents bring their kids to a sunday school at a mosque you mm -hmm. know they're they're basically handing them to the wolves if it is a mosque that is you know 
which quite a lot of them are, unfortunately, funded by Saudi, uh, you know, teaching this very strict Salafi interpretation, um, right, is just, like, it's, you are picking on the weak and you're just handing the weak. So someone like Sinead O'Connor or someone in that, in that state of mind is very easy prey to, I mean, it could have been like a, I don't think you really have that many fundamentalist Christians in the UK, but it could have been something like that. It could have been a, uh, I, I, I don't think she would have gone in the route of a white supremacist, but let's just say it was something like that. But you know, like, you know what I mean? Like it could have been anything where they prey on someone who's weak and vulnerable. And that's, yeah, yeah. So in terms of the Christian fundamentalists, we do have some, but they're not as powerful as the Muslim fundamentalists. So um, the Birmingham school with the LGBT issue, um, actually it started with Christian fundamentalists initially, um, but they were much, much fewer in numbers. They managed to, the teacher that was, um, that, that had created this program, he was in another school and he was forced to leave by the Christian fundamentalist parents, but they didn't, they, they didn't manage to galvanize uh, mobs in the same way as the Muslim fundamentalists did. When the Muslim fundamentalists took up this issue in the next school, the Christian fundamentalists then piggybacked off that movement. Then we also saw Jewish fundamentalists piggybacking off that movement and far-right fundamentalists piggy, piggybacking off that movement. It was interesting because we saw, uh, we could see all of this playing out on our social media when we first started picking up the case. Um, we we notice the the kind of the the weird voices that were joining forces with this. We actually also had uh, rather disturbingly some feminist voices that were saying this is good because we don't want kids being taught about the trans issue. Now I I mean I have quite strong views about the the trans issue, um, but I also don't think that it's a problem teaching kids about equality. Yeah, I mean. I mean, the one thing that, okay, the, the whole, this whole protest, especially in Birmingham, like, we we had something similar in Ontario um, quite a few years ago, and it was the same thing. It was Christian and Muslim fundamentalist groups getting together to stop sex, sex education for kids because they didn't like what was being taught. But, I mean, I, I one of the worst parts I found about what was going on in Birmingham, though, was, like, you know, first it was like, a, you know, why are you promoting this and this, that? But at one point it came down to the fact that they didn't even want their kids to know that, you know, the LGBT community existed. Yeah. Like, it, it was yeah. just, you know, wiping out of people. And it was like. One parent has been reported just saying that if my child is gay, I will kill them. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't understand that. Like, you know, at one point, you know, you'll, you'll have, like, I mean, you're from Pakistan, I'm from India, you know, I'll cut off yeah. my right arm for you, I'll do this, you know, like, like these, yeah, yeah. these, these but, and then right away, but if you don't do this, I'll kill you. And it's like, yeah. wait a minute, you know, like, there, you know, you said it's not unconditional, it's not, um, there's always something attached to it, and it's, uh, you know, it's almost like it's bribery, you know? Yes, it's just, it is. And it, uh, it's depressing. Um, Which is hugely uh, abusive. It's hugely abusive. If everything that you do, uh, if your love and compassion and solidarity comes with conditions attached, then it's not really solidarity at all. Um, and you know the backlash that a lot of the people, um, a lot of the people supporting this 
uh, program have received has really shown the homophobia that still exists within this country. I mean, there have been le- law changes. When I first got into the mental health sector, they was, uh, you know, they were, they told me about how um, it wasn't that long ago that they were sectioning, chemically castrating, um, uh, you know, homosexuals in this country. So. Uh, it, you know, we made progress, but then we regressed once again. Uh, I, I don't understand that. I was like, you know, up until about, you know, the late 90s, yeah. you know, early, early 2000s, it seems like things were getting better and better. Yes. And we were, we were coming close together. And all of a sudden, everything became about identity. Everything became about, you know, yeah. there there is no more talking about like, you know, a common humanity or, you know, groups getting together. It's all about, well, you know, if you're not a Muslim, if you're not a Muslim woman, don't speak about the hijab. If you're not a black person, don't speak about what's going on to the black community. Why? Why can't, if I see an injustice, why can't I speak out about what I think is an injustice? And if I'm wrong, you know, talk to me, correct me if, you know, if you think I'm wrong saying that the hijab is misogynistic, explain yeah. to me why I'm wrong. Don't just call me, you know, an Islamophobe or whatever and just, you know, and then just walk away. Educate me why but, I'm wrong then. But the problem is what we've created in Britain, and I'm pretty certain in the US as well, uh, and in Canada, I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong, um, is we've created a, a crash like environment for uh, anyone over the age of 18 so rather than um you know challenging young people that are going off to university and college about their their views we've created an environment where um we're just tolerating their their kind of outbursts when they when they think that their feelings are hurt when i when i made outrageous statements at university my lecturer shouted me down and said get the evidence or fuck the fuck off I'm really grateful for that because then what I did, the the Sadiyah that went to university in the beginning and the Sadiyah that left the university were two very different women. You know, I left university thinking I can't just make uh, outrageous assertions without evidence because I come across as a dickhead, (laughs) you know, which actually nowadays university students are leaving university thinking that their feelings are more important than facts. You know that they can shout down facts if they their feelings are hurt or they're uncomfortable. And the whole purpose of university is to create a safe, uncomfortable environment where you can challenge young people. And if they don't like it, in the safety of that university, they can then say, "Hang on a minute, let's let's talk about this, let's unpack this, let's critique this," and they can develop their critical faculties. But if they're not being able to do that in a university, then actually they're not going to be very well prepared for the big wide world the big wide world that is supposed to be difficult for them yeah i okay i the universities here are getting worse um yeah and they it's the same things happening here but i mean it's yeah. it's like you know the, the whole feeling things and all that but it, it's like you're not prepared like you're completely not preparing them for it but unfortunately no. that that unpreparedness is yeah. now seeping into like I used to I, I work for a government and you know so and I know other public institutions were starting to do this where they're bringing yeah. in this diversity training they're bringing in this kind of stuff and it's all about 
it's all very subjective. It's all how it makes people feel. And you have to think about how your actions will make people feel. Um, I'll give you an example. We were upgrading some of the communities to get fiber optic. And this is going off topic. And we were putting fiber optic into the homes in the communities because the internet service up in Northern Canada is horrible. Um, I, yeah. and I, I manage like in the, the, the area where I lived in, I manage the, the internet service provider that the government ran. So I, I know that it's not the greatest service. Yeah. My argument was, okay, we're going to have to put these modems in the homes because, you know, if, if something goes wrong and we need someone to turn it on or off, it has to be accessible yeah. to the, the end customer. And the yeah. reasoning I got was that these modems are expensive and a lot of the people might just break them because, you know, people get drunk up here a lot, which is not untrue that there is a huge alcohol problem in a lot of those communities. Yeah. So because of that, people might get drunk and break the modems and the modems are expensive. Let's leave them locked away in the furnace room. And I said, well, if something goes wrong, I have to send someone there to fix it. Whereas right. if it's in the house and the person can do a little bit of stuff like, okay, unplug this, plug this cable in here, you know, just very basic things, right? I'm not asking anything terribly technical. No. But now I have to send someone to fix a very simple problem because yeah. they want to treat people like children. And it's what I'm seeing coming out of the universities. It's you still want to keep the infancy of these kids going. And they're not kids. They're in their 20s. They should be yeah. prepared for life. And, you know, they don't, there is no struggle. Like everything is, um, I heard, uh, I don't know if you ever watch any of his stuff or uh, Joe Rogan, I hear him use his term a lot. It's like yeah. you're you're nerfing the world. Yes. You know? yeah. And that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's, it's there, there's no... Like I see it with my nephew, smart yeah. kid, really bright. But I mean, you know, and part of this is a state. Like if my sister had let him go to the park right across the street when he was 10, child protection services could have taken him away because, oh, you're not watching your kid. Wow. And it's like, okay, he's across the street in a park. It's not like, yeah. you know, she's letting him go downtown by himself. Even though, you know, I used to take a bus into downtown Montreal, you know, bus and subway when I was eight years old. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, it, this infantilizing of society has led to society rotting a little bit, really. Like you have to be able to, be, you have to, people have to, and individuals have to be challenged to learn. You know, we didn't learn from, like, you know, being wrapped up in cotton wool. I think what what's ended up happening, and the thing is, I think where this has been allowed to happen at universities, those university students have to go out into the big wide world and they have to get jobs, they have to be able to engage in, you know, um, adult life, and then they're taking those ideas that they're learning of the fact that they can kick off at university and get their way, they're taking that kind of behavior into the workplace, which is rotting society. I spoke to a poor university student yesterday, lovely guy, his partner's ex-Muslim, he's white British, but he's also autistic, so he processes information, and then he asks just basic straightforward questions. He's doing sociology, um, and the humanities is one of the worst oh. places where rot is occurring um, and he said to me so his lecturer who's Muslim had said um, uh, you know he's talking about Islam and talking about Muslims and talking about racism and likening Islam to a race and he just quite innocently said well excuse me sorry um, this isn't uh, Muslims aren't a race That's all. that was all his statement was he got full on attacked Somebody called him a cunt. Somebody um, threatened him, 
said, come outside, we'll deal with this outside. And the lecturer stood by. In fact, he, well, he was saying that the lecturer was actively um, uh, encouraging this person for, uh, to take him outside and kick his head in. This, and the, the fact that university lecturers are now acting like this, and I've dealt with a lot of le lecturers as well, um, that uh, they're behaving like infants too, realistically, actually. Um, but I think this is this has been there's been an intentional move towards this because they are, you know, they're 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 promoting this kind of infantilization of mainstream society, and we're much easier to deal with if we're all behaving like, you know, yeah. idiotic fucking kids. But but I mean, all this like this stuff. Um, I worked overseas for close to thirteen years, and I was in war zones and disaster areas. Um, yeah. I came back to Canada in 2014. So I left before social media. Um, mm. You know, there was like instant message, like there was MSN Messenger and stuff like that, but there wasn't really social media. I came back in 2014. I saw this insanity. And I mean, I, I was in active war zone. So even when Facebook and Twitter and all that were becoming more ubiquitous, we weren't allowed them on the basis just because of you can give out information really easily, right? Yeah, of course. Um, so, but I come back and I see this and, you know, especially this shut up, you're racist, don't talk about this, you know, things you couldn't talk about. I mean, the first thing that popped in my head was these are blasphemy laws. Like, why are we creating yeah. new blasphemy laws? And recently there was a guy who wrote this, uh, uh, well, there's one British person and two American people did these studies. Uh, they did a bunch of papers yeah. that got published in like, you know, feminist studies and race studies and whatever, but. The, one of the guys who was involved in that, James Lindsay, he wrote this article, yeah. and it's a long article. It's fifteen to 20,000 words on yeah. the religion of social justice. And when he talks social justice, he's not talking like the Martin Luther King, right? Which yeah. that is a social justice I can get behind. But he's talking yeah. like this new perverted form of social justice where it's all based on identity. It's all based on grievance. It's all based on oppression, right? It's, yeah. um and, you know, he points out the similarities where it's similar to religion, you know, like it's got, you know, the, the epistemology behind it. Uh, you know, yeah. he talks about whiteness as being akin to original sin. Um, and yeah. I mean, he was, some, he actually has written a couple of books on religion and he studied the psychology of religion. So it was an interesting piece. And that's like, I've been over the last few years, like, cause when I came back, I was never outspoken about anything really. I believed in certain yeah. values. I was always a free speech fundamentalist, but I just started speaking out about it. And then I got yeah. started being a little bit more vocal about uh, the ex-Muslim thing, but yeah. it's all the same fight. It's, yeah, you know, you know, it's, it's it, obviously like the, in Islam, the, the direction of the, the hatred and the direction of what's banned, what's allowed is, you know, it's different than what's done with a white supremacist, let's just say, but yeah, like it's it's come to the point where I think, you know, I, and I'm obviously what you do is very important. What Council of Ex Muslims of Britain does is very important. And I'm not saying you guys should stop, but I'm just saying I think it's time for everyone to coalesce together and say, okay, you know what? There's authoritarianism and there's liberalism. Let's sort out what's what, and then <laughs> yeah. we can attack the authoritarianism. And when I say attack, I mean obviously like you know, counter against it. I'm not talking about full-on violence or anything, but 
yeah. because it, it, it's so many different shades of the exact same thing, you know. Yeah. And it's 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 time we I think it's time we started like, yo, okay, let, let's think, let's attack what's what needs to be attacked. Sorry, go ahead. You know, it's really interesting. So I mean, like. Uh, before I go on, actually, I really like this term free free speech fundamentalist. I think I'm going to steal that from you, if you don't mind. <laughs> I, I, I stole that from, I think I stole that from Ayanna Hirsi Ali, so go ahead. Oh, really? I like that a lot. I like that very much. Um, but um, So it's interesting. Um, in terms of where we are today, um, so the the right, uh, and I'm not talking about the far right. I'm just talking about like the conservative right. Mm. Do want to, um, do want to keep us divided. It's in their, you know, it's in their interest. So, in the UK, this uh, this started a very very long time ago. In 1926, we had a general strike where everybody came out on strike, and, and in 10 days, this country was brought down to its knees. And they never ever wanted to see something like that again. And every single revolution around the world that ever happened you know the french revolution had the brits quaking in their boots like the british uh, powers that be quaking quaking in their boots it's very very frightening for the powers that be when people organize um so to ensure that that never happened ever again there was lots of legislation brought in things like the trade union legislation to ensure that you couldn't have so if one um industry was striking if another industry came out and did a sympathy strike alongside them that 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 sympathy striking community would be uh prosecuted uh with the heaviest of penalties so that was one thing that happened um so they brought that in the other thing they started doing was actively attacking communities and we saw this you know throughout uh after 1926 with every single strike action that happened we saw this kind of attacking of those communities so trade unions were attacked community centers were attacked children's centers were attacked youth centers were attacked any place that could have been used as a free public space was attacked even pubs you know, in this country, we used to have free public houses where people could come and have meetings and have a quick pint. Even that's not the case anymore. Like going for a pint, it cost you an arm and a leg. So people can't afford it anymore. So there was there was this constant attack against communities that were trying to organize uh, because obviously power in numbers and they know that. Now, the inter- interesting thing that's happening, though, is where the right had to make an effort. And I'm not talking again, I'm not talking about the far right. I'm just t- just talking about the generic mm-hmm. conservative. Right. Um, uh, where they had to put in effort to divide us and to keep us apart from each other now the left are doing that job for them uh, so the 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 postmodernist and the kind of liberal left that we've been talking about that exists now there's this regressive left um this 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 tactic that they have of dividing people by their ethnicity and then their religion then their sex then their gender every single dividing line that you can fucking think of they are actually doing the job of the, the the right wing you know quite fantastically that's why i believe that's why postmodernism and this regressive left move have got so much power now because there was a, a silent acceptance from the other side and i'm not blaming the right for this um but i i'm blaming the fucking idiots on the left and i personally think it as a left 
as a left winger, if you are not talking about class, if you're not talking about inequality, if you're not talking about, you know, um, if you're not doing stru the structural analysis that the left used to do, then you do not have a right to call yourself a left winger. If you're only focusing on identity, call yourself a right winger because actually that's what the left used to do. There was this kind of tribalism that used to exist in the left. And if you're now behaving like that, then you are only you're only a right winger. You're not a left left winger. And I think it's really important to kick back against this modern left that we have now. And they are stronger than us because actually our voices, the, this is the mainstream left narrative now. Um, but we have to kick back against it. And, we, it, you know, it's going to be a horrible fight. And it pisses me off, if I'm honest. You know, the, these young lefties, and some of them are a bit older, but th this, this modern left, they, they're, they're claiming that they're the most oppressed when they've had it the easiest they've ever had it. You know, there's, there's women's organizations in this country that um, have been going for 40, 50, 60 years that, um, that had to fight on every single level. They were fighting the racists and the bigots within their own community. When they when they set up their domestic abuse services, so I'm talking about um, there's an organization called South or Black Sisters. It's fantastic. And they're still as radical as they were when they first started. They were fighting fundamentalism, religious, fundament, religious fundamentalism. They were dealing with domestic abuse and sexual violence within our communities. They were dealing with accusations of fueling more racism and they were dealing with the racists they were dealing with misogyny they were dealing with um every single kind of backlash you could think of they've had their head kicked in they've had their heads kicked in they've experienced actual genuine bigotry and the young people today they haven't had that yeah okay um about that like i'm again it's just half the stuff i say or write i'm being i'm very snarky and um but i mean I, I i because you hear about cultural appropriation but then a lot of the stuff you hear from like white people like you know middle class yeah. you know so-called liberal white people with this white guilt and it's saying mm. it's all the fault of white people and stuff like that and oh how dare you speak out against you know group x right and i just yeah. started calling it victimization like victim appropriation like you're appropriating yeah. someone else's victimhood. You're you're feeling, you know, aggrieved on the behalf of someone else who probably doesn't even feel aggrieved. Yeah, and exactly. And it's it, it's ridiculous. Um, I'm gonna like thank you very much for your time because it's been really generous. But I'm gonna have to get going. And if I just if you had anything left to say, if you yeah. wanted to if you wanted to promote anything, I know you're working on a couple of things. If you want to talk about yeah, that, I where can people get a hold of you? So uh, a couple of things, just one last point before we do go, um, and it's been really, really, really nice talking to you. It's been, I can see we're both like quite animated as well, <laughs> uh, uh, which is really positive. But the end to this cultural appropriation narrative, um, sorry to use the word that you hate, um, <laughs> The, the problem with it is right now they're saying stick to your own, you know, uh, what's that horrible phrase that they started using or that horrible kind of, um, you know, stay in your lane. That oh, pisses me. God. So vile. So, so fucking vile. But um, the problem with this right now, it's, you know, you stick to your own clothing, you stick to your own culture, you stick to your own food, you stick to your own music. Do you know where that ends up? The, what I see as the end destination to that is you stick to your own race. 
you do not have mixed marriages, you do not have mixed children. You know, that's exactly what the far right in this instance want. You know, the idea of somebody having a mixed marriage enrages the far right. The idea of uh, mixed race kids enrages the far right. To, to think that this is where the, this, this left could end up, and it is an absolute, and you know that that's exactly where I see this ending up. It means that they need to check themselves right now, right now, and put an end to this fucking idiocy that they have. So that's that's one thing that I kind of wanted to end on. But in terms of um, some of the stuff that we are doing, so the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain right now is fundraising. We've literally just started the fundraiser. Um, for we've we've got various activities that we're doing in LGBT Month. So we are going to be doing um, a panel discussion. We're going to be showing a film. Um, we're going to be um, doing like a, an art exhibition, uh, and we're hoping to take part in the Pride Parade again this year, which is you know last year we really had to fight to be able to get back um uh onto the parade so we're we're in the process of doing all of that now um but we are our funds are dwindling so we are hoping to fundraise so if anybody can donate even a little bit it really 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 does make a difference it means a huge amount um but like follow our work and and just just get in touch if you need help with anything i mean we we work with um you know upwards from 500 people a month every month um with various issues so if you do need help and support please do get in touch with us um you can just find us at the council of ex-muslims of britain if you google that like our website is the first to come up um and i can be contacted um via the website as well all of our email addresses are on there there's a contact number on there if you need help advice or support with anything at all um yeah please do get in touch and thank you so much for having me on your podcast no problem uh thanks a lot for coming on it was great talking to you and uh, i can see why you're uh, a spokesman for cmb because you're so well spoken um and thank you everyone for listening (laughs) (laughs) yeah well no thanks a lot Uh, just hang on one sec so thanks everyone for listening and i will be back again